Yo, this is Pastor Tito, and welcome to another episode of the Revolutionary Podcast. This week, we are picking up where we left off last week on our Easter sermon, which was a big focus on how do you know you're saved? Well, today we are looking at the question, who can be saved? And we are looking at one of the most historic rescue missions in the history of the world that God has done. And we are going to look at it by first looking at one of the most historic rescue missions in U.S. Navy SEAL history. by telling you a uh, quick little story about something that I was really interesting. And so this is a story. I want to say there was a book that was written on it. I think it's called Saving Bravo, something like that. Um, anybody watched Saving Private Ryan, like those kind of movies before? So it's kind of a little similar, but this one happened in the Vietnam War. And it was resulting and focused on Lieutenant Colonel Gene Hamilton. I keep on wanting to say Hamilton, all right? We, we got some Hamilton fans in the house. Not Hamilton, but Hambleton. And so what was interesting about his story is that this man in, during the Vietnam War, he was shot down and behind enemy lines. And so he was the only survivor that made it from his plane. And he was deep in North Vietnamese territory. In fact, he was surrounded by some say close to 30,000 North Vietnamese troops. I mean, he was in the middle of it. And the thing that makes this rescue mission, which is considered to be the greatest rescue mission in Naval, Navy SEAL history. The reason why is because he was such a high profile person. Out of all the people that, have, that survived that plane crash, it was him. And he had something about him. See, he had top secret clearance to classified information on cutting edge missile technology. And the thing is that the Soviets and the Vietnamese they knew that. They found out who had survived because they were able to wiretap some stuff. They found who is this asset that's in their territory. And now it was a race between the North Vietnamese Army and the U.S. military to see who is going to get to this man first because it was a big deal. Now, fast forward, it was pretty cool to see a lot of amazing things and how he was able still to survive and spy out and give certain intel on the enemy and stuff like that. But there was failed attempt after failed attempt after failed attempt because, I mean, the heavy power was so, the, the firepower was so strong because there was so much concentration of the North Vietnamese army there. And so they couldn't get anything from the air. It had to be from the ground. And so this one guy, it was a, a Navy SEAL. His first name escapes me. I know his last name is Norris. It's not Chuck Norris. That would have made it really cool, but it's not him. It was a Norris, all right? And he goes, and him with the commando, um, an allied Vietnamese commando, they go together with a couple more, and they go on the ground deep in enemy territory to try to find this man. And the thing is that they couldn't get to him. So they had to try to get um, Hamilton, and now some other dude who was shot down as well in part of the rescue mission, uh, they try to get him to this rendezvous point where they can pick him up. And so what they did was, because the Vietnamese had tapped into their wire transfers and they were able to you know, decipher everything, they had to come up with a code to help Hamilton, who was the furthest away, in order to get close. So the goal was they needed to get him into this river and he had to swim downstream because that's where the manpower would be. That's where the rendezvous point would be. But he was really far from there. So they gave him these clues because, see, the one thing that he had, Hamilton loved golf, and he had a photographic memory of every course he'd ever played on. So it was a pretty cool brain that the guy had. 
So here's the code that they gave him. The code said this, you are going to play 18 holes and you're going to get into the Swanee and make like Esther Williams and Charlie the Tuna. The round starts on number one at Tuscan National. And it took him a minute to figure it out. And then he realized, oh, okay, I need to get into the river because Swanee, and there's an old song, Swanee River. I'm not going to try to sing it, but yeah. So they, they use that to say, oh, there's a river I need to get into. And then he has to make like Esther Williams and Charlie the Tuna. Esther Williams was a famous swimmer back then. Charlie the Tuna, you've seen the guy, right? So, all right, so now he gets it. Oh, I got to go to the river and swim. And then he says, they're going to give me 18 instructions on how to get to the river. And so instruction number one was, right, the first hole, Tuscan National. Well, my man memorized and he knows the first hole at Tuscan National is 408 yards running southeast. And so that's how he did it. And so they gave him instruction after instruction. Every time he hit hole one, they gave him another one. They gave him another one. They gave him another one. And he was able to make it out. An amazing rescue mission that costs a lot. The U.S. military guys, I mean, they lost five uh, aircraft. Multiple others were injured and uh, damaged. They had multiple lives lost. I want to say it was close to maybe 10 to 12. I mean, they lost a lot of guys trying to save this one man. So was that sacrifice worth it? Was it worth it? Of course it was because in, in the wrong hands, man, that, that would have been amazing in a negative way. But it, it, it makes sense for a military. I, I bring that story up for this reason. It makes sense for the U.S. military, for any military, to make that effort to save one of their own, right? That makes sense. It makes sense. Would it make sense if a military did that for an enemy and went out of their way and paid such a high price on their part to rescue an enemy, not to extract information, not for their good, but they're going to rescue the enemy for the enemy's good? and then release him like if nothing ever happened. Does that make sense? No, right? That doesn't happen. You, we don't do those things. People don't do those things. Well, God does. And that's what's interesting about what we talk about, about the gospel, about Jesus and who he is. Because see, God did not just rescue us. Like you and I are not just captives to sin. You and I are not the victims that the devil has trapped in a hole somewhere. And here comes Jesus, all right, like Rambo, in order to try to save us, all right? I just dated myself on that one. And so that's not like Jesus, all right? We are not the victims necessarily. Listen, we are the perpetrators. We are the ones, because of our sin, we are enemies of God. And God did that very thing in order to rescue enemies, in order to love those and to restore those. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what Christians have been talking about for 2,000 years. This long mission that we've been talking about, we, we call people missionaries for a reason, right? Because they are on a mission. What is the mission? God's mission. From day one since the garden, there has been a mission at play. And we've been receiving codes after code after code in the Old Testament. God's showing, and then Jesus is the ultimate revelation of those codes that make sense. I'm like, this is what he's been saying this whole time. Oh my gosh, I get it now. I get it now. And so that's what Christians have been doing. And that's what Peter has been doing. So we have been looking. If, if you've been with us for a little bit, if not, if this is your first time, that's all good. I'll catch you up super fast. But we've been studying the book of Acts, and the last two weeks, we have been looking at Peter's second documented missionary journey. And so two weeks ago, he was, uh, we talked about how he was in Lydda, and God used him to raise a paralyzed man, and a whole town got saved. Last week on Easter Sunday, which by the way, you guys are the real G's online and in person because everybody shows up on Easter. The real G's show up the, the Sunday after Easter. So everybody give yourself a little pat on the back. Let's, let's go, all right? There it is, there it is, there it is. Good job, all right? The real ones, if you show up after Easter, you, you, you the champs, you the real ones, all right? You the real ones there. Okay, 
So he goes to town number one, save, uh, he, he, God uses him to heal a paralyzed man. Everybody gets saved. Last week we talked about he went to the next town. The next town he's there, God uses Peter to resurrect a dead woman. And then everybody gets saved. So you see a pattern here, right? God does something in one person and a ton of people get saved. God does something in one person, a ton of people get saved. Now we're at stop number three on his missionary journey, which we're going to talk about today. He stopped number three on this missionary journey. Something happens to one person. And people are still getting saved since that moment. And so we're going to look at this moment because it is a historic moment. And we're going to look at, again, one of the longest narratives. All right? So get your reading glasses on because we're going to look at one of the longest narratives in the, old, in the New Testament because it is so significant. And we're going to see with this moment what God did in one man and this one household that he has unleashed his rescue mission into the entire world. All right, so let's look. We're going to read Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to have it online for everybody, and we're going to have it on the screen as well. But we're going to read the whole story. We're going to go straight through it, all right? So let's look. Acts chapter 10. We're going to read. Actually, I'm going to start in Acts chapter 9, verse 43, the last verse of chapter 9, and we're going to run it all the way through chapter 10. Now, some of you guys... We're going to read a chapter today. Do not say, well, hey, 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 you know, I read a chapter today. I read a lot, so I'm good until next week. Nope, don't do that, okay? So, you know, we're, we're going to get a lot in today, but it's going to be good. All right, so here we go. Let's look at Acts 9, 43. So this was just after the resurrection, just after God used um, Peter to, to heal this one person. Everybody's getting saved. And then chapter 9 ends with this transitional phrase. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Now chapter 10. There was a man in Caesarea, here's that other town, named, uh, his name was Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. So he oversaw a hundred uh, Italian, a hundred Roman troops, and a centurion was always somebody of noble character, of, of a, I mean, a respectable person, a pretty amazing guy. You didn't just get there to get there. So crazy good, uh, you know, pretty cool guy. He was a devout man, and key phrase here, he was a, he feared God. He was a God-fearer. Along with his whole household, he did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. So now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as Peter was traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. That was a customary for people back then to do something like that. Everybody had like flat roofs and stuff. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. And now a vision. He sees a vision from, from the Holy Spirit. He saw heaven opened up and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, lowered by its four corners uh, to the earth, which also represents the four corners of the earth. In it were all four-footed animals and reptiles on the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. 
no, Lord, which is already funny right there. It says, no, Lord. I'm like, if God is Lord, how are you going to tell him no? That was an interesting little, you know, pause for a minute. But he tells him, no, Lord, Peter says, I have never eaten anything impure and rich and rich, uh, ritually unclean. And then again, a second time, the voice says, what God has made clean. Can everybody read that next phrase with me? Do not call impure. We're going to come back to that later. This happened how many times? Three times. This happened three times. And Peter has this conversation back and forth three times. Suddenly, the object was taken up into heaven. Now, while Peter was deeply perplexed, my man was confused, about what the vision he had seen might, have meant, might, might mean, Right away, men who had been sent, um, right away, men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Holy Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubt at all. So don't doubt this, because I have sent them. So then Peter went down to the men and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. So what's the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, and then he kind of retells the story. Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish community, was divinely directed by the holy angel to come to you in this house and to hear a message from you. So Peter then invited them in, and they lodged with him. So this is an interesting thing. I like Peter's invited these non-Jews into this house to eat and chill for a minute. The next day, so they stayed overnight. The next day he got up and sent out with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. So he went with six other Jewish believers. The following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them. Had called together his relatives, his close friends. My man, threw, he was about to throw a party. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and began to worship him. This is customary for centurions to be able to like worship Caesar or people in higher ranks. So even though he's worshiping Peter, it's kind of like showing a sense of honor and respect. Like there is authority in your life, Peter, that I recognize. So Peter tells him, no, 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 lift him up, stand up. I'm just a man. I'm also a man like you. So while talking with him, he went out and found a large gathering of people. I'm like, oh, this is a party. Peter said to them, interesting thing what he says. Listen, you guys all know Caesarea was in Judea. So this was a customary thing that what he's explaining it was common knowledge. You know, it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with a visitor, a foreigner. But God has shown me I must not call any person what? Impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection. I was sent for you, so may I ask, why have you sent me? I was just common on. like, all right, I'm here, so um, what's the deal? What's going on? Right, he doesn't know yet. He asks a simple question. Why have you sent me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this very hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then, a, dazzling man in clo uh, a man in dazzling clothing stood before me, and I said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa. And invite Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in, in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So immediately, he, I sent for you. And it was good for you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything that you have been commanded by the Lord. All right? Pray y'all got that same attitude. So I'm going to do the same thing. All right? So, all right? So we are ready to listen to. Let's go. Next one. Peter began to speak. Oh, now I truly understand. Now I get it. The light bulb goes off. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Beautiful phrase there. God does not show favoritism, but 
in every nation, the people who fear him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent this message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place. They all knew what happened to Jesus throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John had preached, how God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with holy power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. I love that phrase. He says, we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both in Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree, crucifying him on a cross. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen. Listen, not by all people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And all of the prophets testify about him and through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. That's awesome. That's an amazing statement he says. And then look what happens. While Peter is still speaking mid-sermon, all right, in the middle of his message, the Holy Spirit comes down on all of those who are hearing the message. The circumcised believers, the other Jews, they, they had, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. That important phrase there. Even the Gentiles were being saved, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. So then Peter responds, which sounds like a very sarcastic statement. He says, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? No. So it's kind of like a sarcastic, a rhetorical question. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they asked him to stay for a few days. So all of these events that Peter saw happening, I'm like saying, you know, when he says baptized, it's not just dunking them in some water, all right? This was something more. In essence, it was part of that, but it was also uh, a, a ritual thing. It was also receiving. Let's receive the Gentiles into the family of God. So this was a shocking moment for Peter and his six friends. They could not imagine and process what was happening because the world officially changed from that moment. Now, I know we read it and be like, I, you know, it's like, whatever. I know, but yeah, you, you got to catch this moment because there's a reason why the story was so long. By the way, this story is repeated three times in the book of Acts. So it is one of the longest narratives. And, and I like to say this a lot, guys. Listen, when you read the Bible, God doesn't miss. Everything that's in there is for a purpose. And so when you see a triple repetition of anything, I don't know if you've ever heard of verses or phrases when you see God as holy, holy, holy. That wasn't a guy with like, you know, he was like stuck. I'm like, holy, holy, holy. Uh, you know, he, he didn't have a stuttering problem as he wrote, okay? That's not that. Every time you see a triple repetition, it's like exclamation point after exclamation point. It's like underline, highlight, bold. It's like texting in all caps, okay? Things like that. This is a big deal. Focus on this. And so... Jesus's story, his crucifixion and his resurrection, the longest narrative in the Bible, because it's the most important thing that God has ever done. Paul's conversion, we talked about this, is the second longest because what Paul did, what God did in Paul's life was a big deal. Cornelius is the next longest because there's something amazing here. And the fact that Paul's and Cornelius' story gets repeated three times is again, it's meant to remind us, don't miss what happened here. Don't miss what happened here because the world has changed since that moment. Because at this point, what Peter saw is like even Gentiles are being saved. 
Now, Gentile, let's give a definition. I like giving y'all definitions, so when you read the Bible next time, you know what it is. A Gentile is a non-Jew. Anybody here a Jew? There you go. We got one. Everybody else, raise your hand if you're not. Say, I am a Gentile. Okay, that's who you are. You are a Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jew. That's it. That's all that means. Gentile, non-Jew. And so this is a big deal because we have a non-Jew for the first time being saved. And what the Holy Spirit coming down and doing all of that, that is the third time we have read that happen. It only happened three times. It happened to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. That was amazing. It happened, Peter was there. It happened the second time in Samaria, and Peter was there, and he couldn't believe it. He was like, wait a minute, the Samaritans too? I mean, that was shocking for them because the Samaritans were considered done. There was like, these guys were half Jews, half Assyrians, so, you know, they're not pure bloods. So they're out of the family of God, and when the Holy Spirit came down, Peter's like, well, I guess not. I guess they're on the team too. That's amazing. And then there was this one. So the Gentiles too. So this is a big deal because this is the first time a Gentile non-Jew got saved. Now, I might have to backtrack and do a correction because I think I said something a couple weeks ago that was incorrect. And maybe I just kind of, you know, off the cuff. Sometimes I maybe say things and I didn't, I didn't even know I said it until after the fact. So I think I said a couple weeks ago that there was an Ethiopian eunuch who got saved who was the first Gentile saved. We talked about this in Acts 8. So this was a guy who had went up to worship in Jerusalem. He was the treasurer of the, uh, well, the head of the treasury of Ethiopia. Big name, dude. And so he was a, a eunuch who went up, worshiped. He was reading a scroll of Isaiah. Philip shows up, tells him about it. He gets saved, and he takes, he's the first one to take the gospel, so many believe, to Africa and deep into there. So that's a big deal. But wait a minute. He's not a Jew. He was an Ethiopian. Why wasn't he the first one to be saved? So listen. We've all read movies, or we've all read books, see what I mean? We've all read books and seen movies, right? And you know how sometimes, the, even though we're watching it in linear time, we cut to another scene that was maybe happening at the same time or maybe prior to to catch us up, right? For storytelling purposes, you got to do that. So many believe that the eunuch, um, his story happened after this one. And so even though it was written first, it didn't mean anything first. So that's one theory. But then the other theory why it wasn't this big of a deal was because he, was, he looked like to be a uh, converted to Judaism. Now, Cornelius was not. Did you guys remember what he was called? He was called a God what? A God fearer. A God fearer was someone who was a non-Jew, who yet believed in the Jewish God, who believed in the scriptures, who believed in the Old Testament, who believed in that, worshipped the God of Israel, right? And uh, loved the God of Israel, yet did not do all of the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs, all right? So he was kind of like a Jew in name only kind of a thing. I mean, the really, well, the, the deal breaker for the God-fearers was, listen, I love that Jewish God. I love his morals. I love his things. The history is amazing. But I, I think I'll pass on the surgery because in order to be a full Jew, you had to be circumcised, okay? In order to be a full Jew, you had to be circumcised. So um, sorry if I'm going to give him some people images, but let's, just, let's be real because it's going to be here. And so Cornelius is like, look, I'll do everything, bro, but I don't need the surgery. I think I'm going to skip the surgery. So, so there it is. So that was that. The eunuch was different because, see, the eunuch was over in Jerusalem, and he had the scripture. So even though he was not a pure-blood Jew, he was doing things that a Jewish convert would do. All right. And so if, if, the, if the eunuch would go up there and be like, all right, so I love this God of the Hebrews. I love him. I want to serve him with all my heart. What do I need to do? Well, you need to follow this. You need to believe this. You need to have be circumcised. Circumcised. I'm a eunuch. I got it. I got you beat. And so, okay, 
And so, I mean, you could say he experienced a catastrophic circumcision at one point. And so, um, but so he was good. And so here he, here he is. And so he was more of a Jew. So this was, yes, technically, you know, he was a non-Jew, but he was technically on the team. Does that make sense? Cornelius was different. Cornelius was different. And it's interesting, by the way, you saw he was a good man. He did good, good deeds, right? But he still needed to hear the gospel. Again, reminding us what we talked about last week, you can be a good person, do good deeds, but good deeds don't save you, all right? You still need to hear the good news of what Jesus is and what he's done. And so this was uh, an amazing moment. Something happened unique with Cornelius that Paul, Peter, God wanted Peter to make sure to understand this. And, and you saw how the light bulb came on, but at first God had to work in his heart, right? And so you saw that vision. Might have been a little weird. Some of y'all might have been excited if you would have seen just a sheet of animals and God said, get up and kill. I'm like, all right, oh, let's make some ribs, John. Let's go, right? And so some of y'all probably would have got excited to, to have done that, right? And it was like, this is going to be fun. Some of y'all probably traumatized. I'm sorry. But anyways, um, the thing is that that whole vision, God was trying to expose something in, in Peter's heart that he didn't realize. He was, he was trying to up, show him a blind spot that he had, that he was unaware of. Guys, I'm telling you, we all got blind spots. And so we need those people that are willing to be able to help us. And we got to read God's word because God's word, when, it, when we read it well, the Holy Spirit's going to want to show us some blind spots that we have. So that's what God was doing here. He was trying to show him some things. And I want you to know that it had nothing to do with food. What God was addressing was not Peter's stomach. What God was addressing was his heart. Okay, there was something there. And you saw it. He used animals and he was trying to say what I call clean don't call unclean because what was he saying I, I can't do this god you're telling me to eat animals that i'm not supposed to eat again i got to give you all some context so why what's the big deal in exodus all right before long ago 1500 years before this god delivers the people of israel and god gives them the law and the law had it was a lot of different kinds of law you had your moral law and then you had your ceremonial laws and so your ceremonial laws were things that God gave to say, listen, dress like this, don't dress like this, eat like this, don't eat like this, do this, don't do that. Because if you don't, you're going to be ceremonially unclean, meaning you cannot approach the tabernacle, you cannot approach the temple, you cannot worship, worship God, okay? So, and those things were meant for a reason. First off, it's pretty cool. Scientifically, that diet is amazing, you know, when it talks about health and all that other stuff, but still. God was trying to show the people, listen, I want you guys to be different. Don't be like the other nations. Don't eat like them, dress like them, because they are all so, everything that they do is so filled with demonic worship, they don't even realize that they're doing it. So I want you to do this in worship to me, but also I want you to stand out. I want you to be different. So when the nations come to you and say, man, that's weird. You guys eat like that? You guys dress like that? You guys talk like that? How come? Well, let me tell you about a God and what he's done for us. You see that? They were supposed to be different in order to make a difference. Guys, I'm telling you, as a people of God, we're called to do the same thing. All right? We're not supposed to be like the culture so the culture can like us. We can't do that. We don't want to look like the culture so that way the culture thinks, oh, let's be like Jesus. If we're the same, then we offer nothing different. Does that make sense? So it's the same for us. As believers in Christ, I'm talking to the church here, we are called to be different, not to, not to show that we're better, but to show people there is a better way. Feel that? That's a difference thing. So... So the ceremonial things, if you ate something, you did that, it was going to be a big deal. You couldn't do it. And so, but the problem again was, it wasn't Peter's stomach that was the issue. It was his heart. Because there was something deep down inside of him that I think he was wrestling with, that he was struggling with. He categorized people. 
into who can be in the family of God and who can't be in the family of God. Who has hope? Who doesn't? He was categorizing them. And I think he was really struggling because when Jesus told them long ago, you know, maybe in this kid time, a couple of years, you know, after the resurrection, all those things, he said, go into all the world. And he first, he said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. All right, cool. That's our people. That's capital. That's hometown. I got that. In Judea. All right, that's our country. We got that. Samaria. Samaria. Okay. And to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. And so a lot of Jews really struggled because they had this concept of that the people of God were a biological people, not a spiritual one. And so they really struggled with this. And I think Peter was doing that as well. He was still struggling. He was like, okay, I've seen God do this with the Samaritans. But God said the Gentiles too. Could that be? How? And I think that's what he's trying to say is like, listen, don't call what I'm going to call clean. You can't call that unclean. And when he said that phrase, don't doubt. Did y'all catch that part? Do not doubt this at all. Like pretty much what he was telling Peter, what you're about to see, listen, you better make sure don't doubt that this is real. Don't doubt that it's real. And so here's this moment. He's processing it. But then what's awkward for me as I'm reading this is he's all infatuated with, no, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be unclean, right? I don't want to be unclean. There were certain animals that were designated unclean, not because they were, didn't bathe. It's just what made you that way. And so he's like, no, God, I can't eat because then I'm going to be what? If I eat this animal, I'm going to be what? Unclean. But the thing is that what's shocking is that he's been unclean ceremonially this whole time. Do you guys remember where was Peter staying? The first house that he was staying that we read. Simon the what? The tanner. A tanner was somebody who worked with leather, who worked with hides. All right. So for him, even prior to this, let's actually back it up a little bit more. When he entered into the house, we talked about this last Sunday. When he entered in the house of Tabitha, who was dead. If you're a Jew and you enter into a room with a dead body, you are automatically ceremonially unclean. But he did it anyways. Because then God used him, raised him from the dead. I don't know, maybe that can nullify it, I guess. Man, well, she was, but technicality, she's not alive now. So was she dead? Yes, she was, but I think I'm okay now. I don't know. But then the tanner, though, is a weird one. Because now he stayed at the tanner's house for some time. And the tanner worked with dead animals. All right? The and these guys, back in the day, back in the day, listen, it's just like us. How many people work from home now? You know, a lot of us work from home. It's a, lot, a ton of people work from home. Well, back then, if you worked, you usually worked out of your house. So if you're a tanner, where are you working? Out of your house. So what do you have inside of your house? You have a slaughterhouse in your house. That is where you live. So the smell, the stench of carcass, of, of meat, of, of dried skin, I mean, it was thick. If you were a tanner, it stuck to you. It was just a part of who you were now. I mean, just infused in your skin. You smelled. And by the way, now for Peter, staying at a house with dead animals, what, may, what does that make Peter now? Unclean. So we're tracking, right? He's unclean. And now pretty stinky. Apparently, I saw this, that Jewish rabbis could, they kept on getting complaints. So they offered women, wives of tanners, they offered the wives of tanners the ability to divorce on the grounds that they couldn't stand the smell any longer. <laughs> and that was true. I'm like, wow. So... I'm just telling you now, I know maybe some of, of y'all might have to deal with the smell from your husband. That's not grounds for divorce anymore, okay? I don't offer that. I don't offer that. But that's how smelly it was. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the smell be so bad? I'm like, I can't. I'm, I'm done. I can't. I can't. So Peter is in there, probably at this point, smelling too, you know? And he's having to suck it up, right? 
And then, and then here's the thing. What did Peter do with the, with the visitors that came, the non-Jewish visitors who came? What did he do? Hey, why don't you come stay at the house? Now he's, on, he's like super unclean at this point, bro. And then he goes and enters into Cornelius' house. Did you not catch when Peter says, listen, we all know this isn't supposed to happen. There's a reason why we are forbidden to do this. Because interaction with foreigners in this way, in this context, makes me ceremonially unclean. So he's been unclean this whole time. So what is his infatuation with eating some pork, right, or whatever? What's the infatuation of if he's been unclean this whole time, why does he think? So there's this thing that was deep down in his self-conscious that God is addressing. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure Peter's really wrestling with a lot now. First off, Peter's doing what Jesus did. If you've ever read the Gospels, did you not see Jesus touching sick people? Did you not see Jesus approaching dead people? Did you not see Jesus um, eating with sinners and eating with outcasts that were said, no, Jesus, oh, he, he, eats and, he eats and drinks with these people, meaning he has a close relationship. And Jesus could care less about being ceremonially clean. He wasn't thinking about his good. He was thinking about the good of others. You see that? Now, he didn't break any laws, but he was able to, he's the only one who could do these things and still be clean because he was Christ, all right? But, so Peter, we see Peter kind of modeling Christ and doing a lot of similar things. Like, I, I'm not supposed to hang out with you. I'm not supposed to talk to you. I'm not supposed to do, but you know what? God loves you, and he pre you know, presented the gospel. We see this willingness. We see this thing, so that's, uh, that's a good thing. And, and then we see also, I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, back then he must have this flashback when, when he was at the Last Supper, and here's Jesus washing his feet. Now, that was a big deal because if you wash somebody's feet, that was like the, 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 the job of a slave. Or if the crew of 12 that were in the Last Supper who done that, we've all seen the picture, right, Jesus? Right, and all that stuff. We've all seen the pictures. And so when we see those things, see, the one who was at the bottom of the totem pole, he had to wash everybody else's feet, which is a disgusting job. It was demeaning. And they were shocked when Jesus got on there and he started washing their feet. I'm like, no, you're, the, you're our leader. You're the one. We should be washing your feet. Why are you doing this? And he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Meaning, he's talking about salvation. If I do not wash you of your sins, you have no part with me. And so then Peter, his exaggerated self, then, all right, man, let's go. I'm going to take a bath. Let's get, if, I love you. I don't want to be separated. He's like, all right, calm down, Peter. Come on. Why you always got to go there? Right? And it's like, Peter always goes insane like that. I was like, calm down, Peter. And then he says, listen, you're, if you believe in me, you're already washed spiritually. All you have to do is just keep washing your feet. Like what he's telling Peter is, listen, if you're saved, you're saved. But what you have to do is you have to watch the way that you live. Watch the way that you walk. And if you see things in your walk that are a little out of bounds, you approach it to God, let him cleanse you, and you keep learning. That's called growing, okay? So that's what you're supposed to do. So then Peter has this understanding. This is why I believe that he, didn't, he wasn't that bothered with the fact that he's been ceremonially unclean this whole time, but he knows in Christ he's clean. So I think he was, you know, that wasn't a big deal because, again, what Jesus told him. But the problem was, again, there was this thing here that he was trying to help him see. Peter, I want you to understand this is not about, this issue is not about what you're allowed to eat. It's who you're called to love. And that's where he's like, who are you called to love? Who is worthy of my love? And it's everybody. Everybody is. And again, when you look at Cornelius, this is what makes Cornelius is a double. Who is Cornelius? Is he a Jew? Y'all should figure this out. But he, what is he? No. But what also is he? If he's a centurion, what nationality is this guy? Or what, what, what uh, political party does this guy pertain to? Rome. Who were the Romans to the Jews? Who were the Romans? Enemies. 
These are the threat. These are the ones who are ruling. They are the tyrants on us. They are the tyrants. The, the Romans are the ones who killed Jesus. They sacrificed him. They crucified him on the cross. The Romans are our enemies. And where does God call Peter to go? Into the house of an enemy, a non-Jew. And so when he got saved, do you not see why Peter and these guys were so shocked? I'm like, you gotta be kidding. Them too? Them too? They, even a Roman can be saved? Even a non-Jew can be saved? Like they were so shocked and excited and happy to see what God was, because only God can do it. And if God can save a Roman, if God could save this man, listen, the door is wide open. Everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, the door is open and Christ welcomes us all into the family of God. This is why that moment was so historic because God used Peter to unlock the keys because Jesus told him, Peter, you got keys and I'm going to open you and then the, the gates of hell aren't going to withstand. Well, guys, this happened right in this moment. God used Peter to unlock the kingdom to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and now to the Gentile world. And guys, the door has been open and it's been open for 2,000 years. Who's glad that you got to walk in? And who's glad that it was been welcome for you too? That's us. So God used him, the door, the, you know, the door has been blasted open and he does this again, this, this sarcastic uh, you know, rhetorical question. What can keep them from being baptized? Nothing, because we see if God has accepted them, so must we. You see that? If they are saved, it, everything else doesn't matter anymore. If you are saved in Christ Jesus, we are equals now. We are, I mean, you know, we're equals before as well. But now we're different, that we are members of the family of God. There is no partial, you know, favoritism that God says, you're allowed to be saved, you're not allowed to be saved. The only people that God does not forgive are the people that don't ask to be forgiven. Does that make sense? And so we see that beautiful statement. They're so excited. And now anyone who is far from God can be members of the family of God. But there's still two categories of people that still exist today. So we talked about that back then. It was like, well, clean and unclean, right? Well, what I call clean, don't call unclean. Well, guys, there's still two categories of people that exist today. You got those who are clean, meaning saved. Your sins have been washed and your soul is clean. And those who are unclean, meaning they haven't been saved. But the beauty part is that if you're in that category, that category isn't permanent yet if you call on Christ. But when you are, what did Christ say? Those who are clean, do not call them, what? Unclean anymore. So guys, when you are a believer in Christ Jesus, I want you to know that your soul is cleaned even though your life still needs cleaning. You, you feel me on that? Because I know that's a hard one to struggle with. But in Christ, you are clean even if you still got some cleaning up to do. But that's why we continue to approach and why we continue to ask God so that he can continue to work in us, but it requires a participation. See, the light bulb went off on Peter when he acted and did what God told him to do. What did he tell him to do? Can we, um, he told him to do three things. He told him to get up and do what? Kill and then eat, right? Get up, kill and eat. And I was looking, I was like, God, what do you want us to do today? Well, there's a command from you here. Is, is this command still good for us today? And I think it is. We, like Jesus gives this command for all of us as well. When he says, get up, kill and eat, we're not talking about we're all going to go hunting out in the woods. And we, you know, I saw deer back there, you know, just so you know. I saw deer one time. But I'm not saying that. That's not what we're going to do. Um, but God does tell us to do these things. He does tell us to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. Another way I'm going to say it is this. I'm going to say, get up, 
uh, crucify your flesh and love. That was what God was telling Peter to do. God was telling him to love these. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to lead you somewhere. Accept them, love them, show them my love. And when they receive it, oh, no, don't doubt that they are saved. Don't doubt what I'm doing in the world. Anybody can be saved. And so, guys, I want you guys to know this is the same thing. God calls us to do the same thing every day. Last week we talked about Easter and, and, and you know, talking about what God has done for us. And so there's a, there's a ramification to that. There's something when we believe in Christ at one time, well, then there's a follow-up that needs to happen. And we're supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to pick up our cross every single day, deny ourselves and follow him. There is something that we have to kill and it's something in us. It is not us. This is why I believe when those who believe and they struggle with the idea of suicide, which we know is a big thing that happens. Maybe we probably know people that have committed suicide as well. So forgive me, I want to be as sensitive as I can. But I think the enemy really tacks onto a truth and twists it. Because when somebody begins to say, the only way for me to be free from this is I have to kill myself. There's a truth to that. There is not, it's not you that needs to die, but there is something in you that does need to die. And Christ is the one that can help you do that. But the enemy takes it, twists it, and now gets you to think, but it's you. You need to kill yourself. No, there's your flesh that needs to die. That is in you. And only Christ is like the ultimate chemo, that he is something, he can kill what's in you without having to kill you. That's what the love of Jesus does. That's what the truth of God does. And so we are called to kill certain things every single day. When we are tempted, you know, it is not a sin to be tempted, but there is things, moments that we have to kill that temptation or to kill uh, a feeling, kill an, an offense when somebody, you know, harms us and hurts us and we start thinking about it. No, we have to kill that, crucify that, and just to give it to the Lord. And the best way that I could describe it is what my friend Kevin, uh, he's in school with me on getting our doctoral together, and he had this crazy story about how he likes to kill puppies. Not literally. It's in his head, okay? So let me show, show you this way. What, this is what he does. He says, an offense and temptation it's like a little puppy. It, it, it comes at you, and, and it seems so cute, right? Puppies want to be picked up, right? Puppies want to be played with, right? They nibble, they lick, they do all those little things. They, they want you. They make, the, they make the little sounds. Pick me up. Play with me, right? That's what sin does. Sin says, play with me. You know, that's what temptation does. That's when an offense, when, when we're really upset at somebody because they did something rightfully, wrongfully, I'm saying, wrong, wrong towards us. And there is that offense and there's something in us that wants to pick up that offense. But every time we pick up that puppy, it bites us, right? You pick up that sin to play with it, boom, it bites you. You pick up that offense that somebody did to you and you entertain it, and now it attacks you, right? He says, I've learned to... I've learned to try to, I don't do it perfectly, but my goal is to view it for what it is. It says, I have to kill that puppy because I know if I don't kill it, it kills me. Does that make sense? That temptation, not the literal ones, okay? Yes, will be better now. Okay, so that feeling, that emotion, I need to learn to kill it because it wants to be played with and no, I'm not gonna do it. That's part of denying ourselves. When I wanna say, ah, oh, I'm just so upset with this person. God help me, please. Mm, but I don't wanna entertain it. Longer than this because I know it's going to be a cancer to my peace and joy. Does that make sense? And so that is denying ourselves to see that for what it is. But here's the thing. The next day when you wake up, this is what Kevin would say. The next day you wake up, you kill the puppy today, but you're going to wake up the next day. You're going to put your feet on the ground and there's the puppy. There it is again. And you have to learn to do it again. 
do it again. And that's what denying ourselves, there's something inside of us that we are called to just give and surrender to God. And so when he says, what does he say? Pick up your, right, get up, kill, and eat. This is a habit that, guys, Christians, we are called to do every day. Peter had to do that. He had to get up and kill his definitions. He had a definition that was a wrongfully one. Who is clean? Who is not clean? He had to kill that definition in order for him to experience something amazing, to experience what God was doing. And it's the same for us. When we learn to be able to in- encourage each other in, as believers in Christ Jesus, to be able to deny ourselves, to die to sin, we can experience we can eat, actually. In the, there's a verse in the Old Testament that God says, taste and see that God is good. Eating involves experiencing, right? Eating involves receiving something into your body. And what does food do when you eat it? It, it nourishes you, right? It does something in you. It becomes a part of you. That's what happens when we receive Christ. It is something that we get to taste and see how amazing the love and truth of God is. And this is a meal that we got to snack on every day. This is something that we got to constantly get up, pick up our cross, right? Kill whatever excuses, kill whatever things that's in us so that we can learn to live and love whomever. Those who, you know, so that God can love us, so that we can love others. That's something that we are called to do every single day. And let me just give you this one thing when it comes to God using you in in this kind of a way. If I can put the last post, it's this. Listen, it takes no talent to love somebody. Okay? Online, hear me now? It takes no talent to love somebody. What does it take? It just takes God's loving truth and your time. That's it. It takes no talent. Because I know we like to say, like, all right, well, I would love to do this, and I would love to, but I can't. I'm not you. I'm not him. I'm not her. Listen, it takes no talent to love somebody. You, it just requires the truth of God in your life and your time. When you do that, look what happens. What did Peter do this whole time? Guys, this would be real. What did Peter do but just ask a bunch of questions? All right, so one right here. <laughs> right? It was like, uh, I know I'm supposed to be here, but I don't know why. So um, what's going on? You know, Peter seemed lost half the time. And so I think that was an interesting thing. If you've ever felt lost, I was like, all right, so now what? Okay, Peter's a funny guy. And so it's the same with us. Like, what did Peter do? God used him, but what did Peter do? He just showed up. He gave of his time. He gave of his time. And the love of God is what shaped him. And he gave him his time. And then God did something transformational in other people. That was it. It takes no talent, guys. We overcomplicate this way too much. I've done this too. We all do this. As Christians, we talk to y'all. We overcomplicate this way too much. We fo- we've been focusing on a small group that we've been doing, uh, which we're going to redo it later this year. Um, and this has been the focus in our small group, right? It's been how loving your neighbor. That is how God calls us to do. In order to love our neighbor, we have to be willing to kill our excuses, to kill whatever, you know, the, the things that keep us from doing this. And our neighbor is literally whomever is next to you. That's it. To love the person next to you. And so, meaning the person next to you inside of your own home. Who's next to you inside of your own home? Who's next to you in your house? Like, who's your neighbor to the left? Who's your neighbor to the right? When you're at work, who's the person next to you? Even now at the random, who's next to you? And so, this is why we're called. If all we did throughout our lives, guys, if all we did as believers, if every Christian literally just loved the person next to them, world would be different. If all we did was love the person next to him without excuses, without this, not showing favoritism or, or assumptions, right? But again, so many times we, we come up with like, oh, well, I'm just tired, or I'm just busy, or whatever else that keeps us from doing something so simple, right? But then if we can kill that excuse, you never know what can happen. And so last Wednesday, uh, I got Patty's permission, so thank you, Patty. She told me I could share a quick testimony about what happened. So she was so convicted 
about that. She was like, oh my gosh, you're right. God has called me to love my neighbor and, and I never reach out to them. You know, listen, I've done this too. Who's guilty of the neighbor, the neighbor uh, shaking, uh, wave and nod? Who's guilty of the waver, neighbor, uh, wave and nod? You know what I'm saying? You see your neighbor, I'm like, that's it, right? You don't even say anything. Whoever's just, right? <laughs> you know, you, you sound like you said something, but you did it. You say, it's the, it's the wave and nod, the wave and nod, the wave and nod. That's what we do. And she felt convicted. Well, like, God has called me to love my neighbor? And she felt such, and then she knew that there was one neighbor that she didn't know, but all she knew was that they had a daughter who was really, really, really sick. And she felt such a conviction. She says, the next day, I went out, and this is a person who's bound to a wheelchair. Rolled herself across the street, all right, up the driveway to this neighbor's house. She knocks on the door, asks, there's the mother, asks for, hey, how you doing? I'm a neighbor across the street, da-da-da, just wanted to say, is your daughter here? I actually have something for her. Okay, that's weird, but sure, okay. And she gave her a gift with some flowers and some stuff. And then she said, and then, you know, they kind of started talking and really, you know, they hadn't been a long time, I guess. I, I can't remember, Patty, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your testimony. I should have had you do it. But so they go home and say, all right, well, she has a doctor's appointment. Maybe, you know, you can meet up with her soon. And so she sees the daughter come out and she's, she's really sick and it's not a, it's not a good thing. And she comes out and she approaches her and says, hey, you're the lady who gave me the thing? She's like, yeah. It's like, how did you know? It's like, well, know what? How did you know that flowers are my favorite? I was like, I didn't. I was like, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't. I just wanted to give you something. That's the first thing I thought of. And then they started talking about some stuff. Turns out they, have this, they, they share the same name. They have the same name. And then they're talking a little bit more. She's asking, oh, I, I hear about, you know, can you tell me a little bit how you're feeling? What's going on? And she, she told her, and like, you have a doctor's appointment later today, right? Yeah, that's where I'm heading to right now. And he says, well, how are you doing with all these things? She's like, I'm not good. I'm scared. And then she has to, I could not believe. I'm about to jump out of, those who were there, tell me, I, I wanted to jump out of my skin when she goes, I'm scared. Can you tell me how not to be scared? Because I'm just scared. Open door. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is too easy. And then so here she says, and she started talking to her about Jesus and said, well, can we talk later some more? Yes, we can. And so there is a massive open door now from this you know, woman, Patty, to be able to speak into the life of somebody else who does not know Christ probably, who's dealing with fear and stroke. And what did it take? A knock on the door and some flowers. Do you see what I'm saying? That it takes no talent? Guys, it takes no talent. It doesn't, you don't need a certain degree, a certain this, a certain that. It takes no talent to be obedient to Christ. It takes no talent to love someone. It just takes the truth of God and what? Your time. That's it. And you let God do the rest. But that requires us to have to deny ourselves, to kill a couple puppies of pride, excuses, apathy, this, that. You know, you know how many times, I know I've done this and I, and I still catch myself. How many, Peter, what was Peter's biggest concern? When Peter said, get up, kill and eat. What was Peter's biggest concern? What's going to happen to me, God, if I do that? Right? What's going to happen to me if I do this? I'm going to be unclean. So where was Peter's focus? On himself. If I do what you're telling me to do, what's going to happen to me? But then it hit him. And I think it needs to hit us because we do the same thing. Well, what's going to happen to me if I share my faith? What's going to happen to me if I tell my neighbor? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to, oh, well, my neighbor, they're going to slam the door in my face? Are they going to do this? Or are they going to report me? Am I going to get in trouble at my job for, for proselytizing and all this stuff or whatever? Like, am I going to get, what's going to happen to me if I do this? But the better question is, and I think those who Peter realizes, what's going to happen to them if we don't? Right? 
Do you see just the shift? What's going to happen to me if I do? Who cares? What's going to happen to them if we don't? The better question is, what could happen to them if we did? What could happen? It's not a guarantee. I'm not saying you're going to go out there and bat a thousand. But tell me if you knocked on a thousand doors and one person opened up and said yes to Jesus, wouldn't all that work been worth it? What's going to happen to them if we don't? And so, guys, this is the thing that God is inviting us to, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, follow him. And how do we follow him? By loving one another. And what's beautiful about Jesus' cross, it's our, the cross that we got to carry is not Christ's cross. Our cross that we pick up, it's just, it's light. It's not heavy. You don't got to carry your burdens anymore. Some of you probably walked in and you, you're watching right now and you got your own burdens that you're carrying, things that you're punishing yourself for. Listen, Christ carried his cross perfectly and he received the punishment for your sins so you don't have to punish yourself anymore for your sins. Do you hear me? You do not have to punish yourself anymore. When Christ says pick up your cross, means that you and I are to carry the cross in our hearts. We need to remember that that cross, why do we have to carry that cross? We need to remember Christ crucified, his great love that he showed on the cross, and that that cross did not end in his defeat, but ended in our victory. Do you see that? So when we carry the cross every day, it is a reminder to do that. We carry the cross to remember what Christ has done for us. We carry the cross to remember who he is and that in him we have life. And all we're called to do is begin every day. What is something that I can deny, deflect, and give so that I can walk with this God better today than I was yesterday? That's the invitation. Get up, pick up your cross, you know, deny yourself and eat. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life that if you eat from me, you'll never hunger again. I'm the water that you drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. See, when we do these things and we taste of the love of God, let me tell you, the love of God is a meal that you get full on the first bite. It is a drink that it satisfies you, satisfy you with just one sip. That is the love that God has given us. And so if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, I want you to reflect. Let us worship for a minute and reflect on what God has given you. Carry that cross and know that you are loved and then find a way what needs to be corrected in me so that God, you can flow and do something through me. And for everyone else, again, the cross, if you came in carrying a burden, you can drop it right now at the foot of the cross. There is, you don't have to carry it beyond the cross anymore. You bring it to him and you leave it. And from there, you get to learn to live for the first time. So the good news is that who can be saved? Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Now, that's a great thing for you if you've never believed in Christ. If you didn't know that was true, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you become. It doesn't matter if you confess and believe in your heart that Jesus is risen from the dead and you believe in who he is. He can save your soul. He can make things right again. The rescue mission is still on. Now, for some of you, you're like, oh, well, that's cute. No, I remember that. That's great. Well, that doesn't inspire me. Well, it should. Honestly, the resurrection should always be fresh in your heart to know that God has saved someone like you. And if he has saved you, then that should, number one, encourage you, humble you 
but also it should motivate you to know that, man, if God saved me, then who else could he save? And the truth is a lot. And so I want to encourage you to respond in that way, to remember what God has done. All right. And to never lose sight of that. And remember, it takes no talent to love. Just believe in the truth of God and your time and watch God duplicate in others what he has done in you.